Well, good morning, Grace. I want to welcome our Grace family today. Uh, Dios le bendiga, la gracia, who will be watching this via the sermon video later. Thanks to Alik for translating for us today. I'm sorry in advance for being a fast talker. I'm going to try to keep it at a reasonable pace. Um, if you're one of our Grace partners this morning, I just want to say welcome. It's a particular privilege that I've been aware of uh, recently that um, we've gotten to lead you in singing and in, in preaching the word here in real time. Some of you in Europe, uh, in Asia, and in Africa. So welcome here this morning, whatever time you're at, welcome. Um, and if you're a virtual visitor uh, here this morning, maybe you clicked on a link that someone... Uh, uh, linked you on Facebook this week and invited you to tune in. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, uniquely, even this Sunday, what we're going to be hearing in uh, God's Word here this morning uh, is a reminder of what this is all about, what we believe uh, as Christians, uh, and what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. I wish you could see what I could see here this morning. Uh, a couple of dear people here at Grace, Maddie Parker and Sarah Kelly, surprised me. I walked in here this morning at about 6.45 just to pray and kind of get my heart ready to be preaching and leading us to the table in this virtual way. And as I walked in the back and began walking down this aisle, I realized that they had taped to all these center chairs, eight and a half by 11 color pictures of many of you. Uh, if you know me on Facebook, you can go find, I took a little video video, um, but it sucker punched my tear ducts. I mean, I just sort of wept looking at all these, your beautiful faces here, and it's wonderful, but it's so much less than ideal. It's not, uh, it doesn't compare to the real thing. I can see uh, Megan and Brianna Smith sitting down there, and the Floyds, and the Wagonettes, and the Dixes. Uh, Walt and Sherry were sitting back there. I moved you to your proper seat. I just want you to know you're right over there uh, where you normally are. It's no substitute for the real thing, uh, but nevertheless, what an amazing thing that by his spirit, uh, we can be worshiping together even though we're scattered. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let's be cognizant of that, that the Holy Spirit um, brings this reality that we can know and be aware that we are with one another in spirit. Uh, so let me pray uh, as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, would you draw near to us right now, that we might know your nearness. As we draw near to you, would you draw near to us and would you strengthen us through your word right now? Would you encourage us and admonish us and refine us uh, and correct us, comfort us, all with the good news of your gospel, with the good news of the message of the cross and the resurrection? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is where we're going to be this morning, the second half of it. You know, a few weeks ago, as we all began spending a lot more time at home, uh, one of the things I began to do is I went to that stack of books I've had that have been on my to-read-one-day list. I don't know if you have this problem, but I will frequently see a book on Amazon. I think, yes, I want that book, and I'll order it, and it'll come, and then it'll sit in a stack of books to read one day, and I won't get to it. So anyway, this last few weeks, I've been working through some books, and the first one that I pulled down, uh, I'd never read for some reason. It's the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Uh, the shorter of, he wrote three actually, and the shortest one is called A Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. And I read it. It was a sobering read, a heavy read. Um, it was a reminder of some of our shameful history as a country, and even more shamefully, our history as a church. 
uh, and our participation uh, in the slavery that happened in the South here in our country. But reading his uh, biography then led me to read uh, one of his most famous speeches called What to the Slave is Your Fourth of July? And I want to read a, begin- a bit of this as we begin here right now. Frederick Douglass delivered this speech to a, a, a ladies' society, anti-slavery uh, society the day after Independence Day one year. And he says this, What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, it's a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. Your boast of your love of liberty and your superior civilization and your pure Christianity while the whole political power of the nation is solemnly pledged to support and perpetrate or perpetuate, that is, the enslavement of three million of your countrymen. You profess to believe, Acts 17, 26, that of one blood, God made all the nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and that he's commanded all men everywhere to love one another. And yet you notoriously hate and glory in your hatred all men whose skins are not colored like your own. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. Note, what he means by republicanism is not the Republican Party per se, but he means the, the form of government, the, Republican, uh, the, the democratic form of government by the people and for the people as opposed to a monarchy. And what he's saying is your celebration of independence and liberty and being a, a government by the people for the people is a sham in light of the slavery. And worse, your Christianity is a lie. Sham's a good word for it. They're celebrating liberty and they're oppressing men and women and children who were created equally in the image of God. It was an ugly lie. Well, in our passage here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is going to say to some of the Corinthians something very similar. He's going to say, your observance of the Lord's Supper is a sham. In their case, the dividing line wasn't by race, but by socioeconomic status. It was the haves and the have-nots were coming together physically to worship together as one body. And yet the manner in which some were doing that was lying about the gospel. It was contradicting the very gospel that the Lord's Supper is intended to display. It was a sham. He tells them as much. In one verse, he says, that's not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. So this passage for us is going to call us to consider, I think, are there ways in which our worship is hypocritical? It's in an unworthy manner. It's professing one thing but saying another. And the good news is if we actually pay careful attention to the Lord's Supper itself and what it's reminding us, what it's proclaiming to us whenever we take it, it's actually the antidote to this attitude in the heart that would divide Christ's church. It's what ought to unite Christ, uh, unite us under Christ and, and cause us to be a people who honor him in a consistent way. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 34. Paul writes this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
from the first place when you come together at a church, uh, as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you d- do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning uh, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. I want to break down what Paul says here into four movements. He sort of says four major things to the Corinthians, in particular the ones who are abusing the Lord's Supper. First, he brings this criticism, this sharp criticism of the gospel disconnect uh, in the way that they were eating the Lord's Supper. Secondly, though, he then gives the contrast, and the contrast is Jesus' institution of this very meal of celebration. So he criticizes what they're doing and then holds up as a contrast what the Lord Jesus instructed them to do in the first place. And then having done that, he gives them a caution and then offers them a correction, a way out of unworthy manner uh, into eating and drinking in a worthy manner. So let's start with the criticism. Verses 17 through 22. The criticism boils down to this. He says, The manner in which you are celebrating the Lord's Supper is dividing and despising the church and is dishonoring the name of Christ. It's the manner in which you are doing it. It's not the actual act itself, but it's, it's what they're doing when they gather to take the Lord's Supper. It's actually dividing the church. It's, it's showing their contempt for the church of Christ, and it's dishonoring Christ. Look at verse 21, which really boils down what it looked like on an average Sunday when they gathered. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So here's the picture. Uh, their weekly day of worship would have been Sunday. Um, which began uh, to honor the day that Jesus had risen from the empty tomb. And as they worshiped on a Sunday, that was a work day for most. Most of the working class 
and slaves, that was still a work day. So likely the church would have gathered near the end of the day uh, around an evening meal, uh, probably in a larger home of one of the wealthier members of the church who had space to host. But apparently their practice was to observe the Lord's Supper in the context of a shared meal. They would have a dinner together that wasn't just the bread and the cup, but a whole meal. But it wasn't a potluck, at least the way that the Corinthians were doing it, because each was going ahead with his own meal. So it either means that the haves, the wealthy, were free to arrive early and they could show up and get started and eat and drink and enjoy being with each other. And finally, when the have-nots and the slaves and the working class could arrive, they were already full and some of them were drunk and there was nothing left for the have-nots except for this observance of the Lord's Supper. Or the focus might be more on that each was just going ahead with their own meal. And so the wealthy brought their food and their drink and they didn't share it. But they just went ahead and they enjoyed, they sort of devoured their meal right in the presence of those in the church who couldn't afford it. It's even likely that they weren't all physically in the exact same place. Even big houses at the time probably couldn't have fit everybody inside the dining area in the house, but some would have sat outside in a courtyard or atrium. And so likely the picture is this, is that the, the, the important haves in the church were feasting inside and the less important have-nots were sitting outside hungry with attention being drawn to their lower status. Either way, it's clear that they might be coming together physically, but they were actually socially distancing themselves from the have-nots in the truest sense of that word. You know, this has become a new phrase in the last two months, socially distancing, but I actually think what we're doing here this morning is less socially distancing ourselves, but physical distance. We're actually trying really hard, Grace, as you're aware, to be cognizant of and remembering that even though we're in our own homes right now, we are still one that COVID-19 doesn't separate us from the love of Christ and it doesn't separate us from the body of Christ. And so we're actually not physically present, but we're trying uh, to be socially um, aware that we are one. But here they were actually physically present with each other, but the rich were socially distancing themselves from the poor. And so Paul says, that's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. In fact, look at verse 17. This is sobering. He says, your gatherings are actually for the worse, not for the better. You would do less damage to the name of Christ if you just stayed home. They were dividing and they were despising the church. They were allowing the social hierarchy that existed outside the walls of the church in Corinthian culture to be allowed right inside the walls so that the church functioned no differently from the outside world. I'll never forget seeing something like this, very similar to this, years ago uh, when I had the opportunity with a team here from Grace uh, to go to India and, and minister for about five weeks in some churches there. And there was one church in uh, southern India on a Sunday morning where we saw this. We got to this beautiful church Beautiful architecture, marble floors, comfortable pews, this really you know, fancy pulpit. And as people began arriving for the worship service, it was crazy. We could see very quickly that the caste system that existed outside the walls of the church also existed right inside the walls. And we watched the, the wealthy and the finer dressed people come walking in and take their places in the comfortable seats. And obviously those who were of a lower caste, in particular the poorest women and children, 
um, without being told, they just found their way down to the floor in the front or the aisles in the sides, and they just sat on the floor. And, and our, t- our team was bothered by that. We were watching and about to go and lead and singing, and Eric was going to get up and preach. And, and Betsy, my wife, and Eric, uh, Eric's wife, Donna, were there. And, and Betsy and Donna, I'll never forget, they couldn't just go sit in the seat. And they got down out of their seats, and they went and sat on the floor with these women in the front. And we were just baffled by the gospel disconnect, that how could it be that we're one in Christ, and, and yet this exists and I remember we, we went back to the YWCA where we were staying or the, or the hotel we were staying at over dinner and we were talking about this. And, but we acknowledged how it can often be easier to see in other cultures very clearly the gospel disconnects and that we can be blind to the fact that the very same sorts of gospel disconnects can uh, exist among us. It might not look quite the same. But we need to consider how are the dividing lines that exist outside the walls of our church in our society threatening to creep into the way that we fellowship with one another in subtle or maybe not so subtle ways? What other categories of haves and have-nots might exist here among us at Grace, even if only um, in the privacy of our own hearts and minds? We should examine our hearts in this before dismissing uh, it too quickly. Are there ways in which you consider yourself a have-not when you enter this sanctuary on a Sunday and you look around the room and there are others in the room that you consider to be the have-nots. Maybe it's not financially based. Maybe it's spiritual maturity. You consider yourself to be knowledgeable and theologically astute like the Christians that were puffed up here at Corinth. And you feel like you generally have your life together and your life is pleasing to the Lord. You see other people whose lives seem to sort of be a mess and their path following Christ doesn't look as nice as yours. And in the privacy of your own heart, maybe there's you know, a despising and a looking down your nose. Even if it doesn't show up physically, visibly um, in where you choose to sit and who you choose to talk with. Or maybe are there ways that you consider yourself to be a have-not? A have And you look around and it's hard for you on a Sunday not to find yourself resenting those in the congregation in your church family who seem to have all the things that you long for and you resent them even if in the privacy of your own heart. May not show up as blatantly as in Corinth, but these attitudes can still exist. I was talking with Jacob Daniel this week about these things and he said, you know, we may look like we're one as we approach the table, but the real question is, do we look like one when we leave the table and go about our week? That's a good question. Grace, youth, I want to speak to you just for a second. You were on my mind this week. I was thinking back to my junior high days and my high school days, which socially speaking, were not awesome. <laughs> I was not a have, uh, I was a have not uh, in, in the popularity category at my school, but I very distinctly remember on my campus, on, in the quad at lunch, you could very clearly see the, the, the haves and the have nots in terms of popularity. It wasn't based on how much money families had. It was more based on how good you looked, how athletic you were, if you were on the the most uh, popular teams or if you were uh, academically accomplished or not. But then I remember coming to my church on a Wednesday night and coming into youth group and seeing as we sang praise songs and as we even met in our core groups, all those same cliques and division lines right here on a Wednesday night. I want to ask you, If a visitor was to come to 412 
on a Wednesday night when we can all come back together, what would they see? Would they see, oh, you have all the same groups I see at my school. Oh, there's the popular haves. There's the unpopular have-nots over there. Or would they walk in and be surprised at the sorts of students that they see loving each other and friends with one another that they would never see on their campus? Because the dividing lines of our culture show up in our church and they misrepresent Christ. But if it's clear among us in the, in the family of God that those lines are not drawn, that it says something good is true about the gospel of Christ. And the, Cor- the Corinthian halves were saying with their actions, Christ's church is divided. Their actions said, not all in the family of God are of equal value. Not all in the family of God will be equally provided for. Not all in the family of God are equally welcome. There are haves and have-nots in the body of Christ. That's what their actions were saying. But the gospel emphatically says that's not true. The gospel tells us that because of our sin, Grace, we are all from birth have-nots. We are born spiritual have-nots. And what the Bible says we have not is any righteousness to commend ourselves before God as our holy creator and judge. None of us uh, have, have, uh, ref- have uh, we have all failed to give God the glory he's due. None of us have lived a sinless life before God. And as a result, we have no righteousness to present to him as our own. But what we believe is that Jesus is and he will forever be the only man, the God-man, who lived a sinless life. He pleased God the Father perfectly. He lived a righteous life, a life worthy of commendation before God. But then he surrendered that life as a ransom. And he bore the guilt of all of our sins on his shoulders on the cross and was treated by God as we deserve. Jesus was willing to bear the weight of God's just wrath toward our our rebelliousness and our proud fist shaking at God and endure it all to the end so that he could say it is finished and breathe his last so that we could be forgiven. And this is the amazing thing about the good news of the gospel. Now God, because of what Jesus did, is able to say to you, if you are a have not who will turn from your sin, and will entrust yourself to Christ as your one and only have. God will no longer see you as a have-not. You are a have, having the very righteousness of Christ forever, and it can't be taken away. Galatians 3.28 says, Now there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. There are no spiritual have-nots in God's family. That's the gospel. And those who were in Corinth distancing themselves from others were lying about this gospel and they were showing a contempt for the church of God. Verse 22 says, do you despise the church of God? You see, they weren't just guilty of passively overlooking and thought, being thoughtless toward the poor among them. No, Paul says it's, it's more than that. You were actively um, showing contempt for some of the family of God. He says, do you humiliate those who have nothing? Do you publicly shame some in the family of God? 
And in doing so, not only are they despising and dividing the church, but they're dishonoring Christ. Because first of all, to lie about Christ is to dishonor Christ. To lie about Christ is to defame and profane his name. But also to despise the body of Christ is to despise Christ, isn't it? Think about Paul when he was Saul. You remember when he was on the Damascus road and he's, he's passionately pursuing, uh, uh, persecuting Christians and he's, he's headed to Damascus to round up more Christians to imprison them and Christ encounters uh, Paul on that road. And he says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You mess with my people, Jesus says. You're messing with me. You come at my body, you come at me. If you despise the body of Christ, you despise me. And so that's why Paul then reminds them of what is this meal supposed to be saying in the first place? And so here's the contrast, verses 23 to 26. The contrast is this. The Lord's Supper is meant to unite the church and to honor Christ. Look back at chapter 10 for a minute, verse 16 and 17 Something he said earlier makes it clear that this meal that we celebrate is to unite the church. He says this, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. That's the point of the one bread, to remind us we're one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is in a food court. There's one food item on the menu of the Lord's Supper. It's bread. And we all go to the same food item as a reminder that we all go to the same source to move from have-nots to haves. And it's Jesus who gave himself for us and shed his blood for us. It's to unite us. But it's also to honor Christ because if you look at what Jesus does when he establishes this new meal that they are to, to uh, keep eating and drinking until he comes again, he puts himself right at the center of it. It's very bold. He takes this meal, this sacred Passover meal that for centuries God's people were commanded to observe faithfully, dutifully, attentive to the details of the meal because it was a reminder of their almighty God who when they were languishing in Egypt as slaves, rescued them with plagues and his mighty hand brought them out from under their slavery to Pharaoh and led them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness to promised land. And Jesus takes this centuries old meal and he says, this meal is no longer necessary. I have a new meal. I'm gonna take the same elements and I'm gonna reappropriate them for a new meal. And he places himself right at the center. And he says, I am about to become the true Passover lamb. I am about to offer my blood shed to cover the guilt and sin of all people who will come to me. And I'm going to bring about a much greater deliverance than from slavery in Egypt. But like Hebrews says, I'm going to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he gives instructions for this new meal. And this is what Paul had delivered to them. He's trying to say to the Corinthians, listen, I delivered this to you, so you've forgotten something. This meal is to be about remembering Christ, proclaiming his death, and anticipating his return. We remember in this meal, we proclaim Christ's death in this meal, and we anticipate his return in this meal. Look at each one. 
First, we remember Christ's body and blood that was shed for us and given for us. He says, Jesus had said, when you do these two things, do these in remembrance of me. It struck me this week, I never thought about this before, but what a unique act of remembrance the Lord's Supper is. Think about this for a minute. Anytime you ever have done something that you would say, this is an act of remembrance, it probably was an act of remembrance of someone who had died who's still dead. For some reason, the, the memory that came back to me this last week, as when I was a kid, I remember growing up and whenever I was at my grandparents' house, my grandma would bake stuff and she would, uh, with her little hand mixer, make whipped cream to put on the top. And our tradition was when she was done making the whipped cream, she'd pull the two beaters out of that old mixer and I got one and my grandpa got one. <laughs> and we'd, we'd stand in the kitchen with our finger getting every last little bit of whipped cream off there. And it was our little tradition. And then my little brother and sister came along and, and wrecked the math on that. And we had to figure out how to divide more than two beaters. But, but to this day, when we make homemade whipped cream, I can't help but remember my grandpa and have these warm memories of the years visiting their house. But that's not what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. It's not that sort of a remembrance. We're not remembering our dead hero. We're remembering the risen Christ, which is a very unique act of remembrance. What it means is we're not just remembering what happened on the cross, although we are, but we're also remembering who he is that went to the cross, who he is now, who's not in the cro- on the cross or in the grave anymore, where he is right now, ascended at the right hand of the Father, where he sits as our advocate, and our king, waiting till the day where he returns as judge and sets all things right and reigns over a new creation forever. This meal um, helps us remember all of that. So when we take the bread and we remember Christ's body that was given for us, it doesn't just remind us that his body was given for us on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago. It reminds us that we are now his body. And that we as his body right now are one because of this present reality of who he is. And as we take the cup and we remember Christ's blood that was poured out for us, it doesn't just remind us of the blood that was shed at Calvary and what happened on that day. It reminds us that right now we are still, like what we sang, the blood will never lose its power. The blood still covers all my sin and commends us before God even today. The the cup reminds us that once we were not a people, but now we are a people. We're God's people. And we proclaim the excellency of that. The blood reminds us, the cup reminds us that everyone is welcome to be covered by Jesus' blood. It's a shelter for rich and poor. And as often as we remember Christ in this way, we are also doing something else. We're proclaiming his death. We're broadcasting something about Jesus' death. We're making visible the fruit of his death. I was thinking last year, I think it was, for Passion Week, um, we uh, celebrated Passion Week thinking about that passage in John where Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies and is buried, um, it bears no fruit. But if it dies and falls into the ground, it's able to bear much fruit, a whole harvest. And what the Lord's Supper, when we can do it the way it's intended to be, and we're not going to see this today in the same way, Grace, but you know what I'm talking about. When we're in this room and everyone lines up and comes to the same bread and the same cup, it is making visible the harvest 
just a, a taste of the harvest that is, has sprouted up across the globe because Jesus was willing like that grain of wheat to lay his life down and die and be buried and then rise again. And we proclaim that. And as we proclaim that, it's also this visible picture of our oneness because we're all coming together equally unworthy and yet equally valued in Christ. That's what happens as we proclaim his death. And the third thing that we do, Jesus says, is we anticipate his return because we are to do this again and again and again until he comes, he says. Which means that every time we repeat this act of, of worship, um, we are anticipating, we are growing an increased uh, desire for something that we're waiting for. Anticipating is like a remembering of the, the future, which sounds like an oxymoron, right? But it's a remembering of the future. Anticipation is remembering what we're waiting for. Oh yeah, something is coming. Something amazing is coming. If you weren't here with us last week for our live stream, Brianna Smith began our worship service welcoming you all with this beautiful reflection that she had had from uh, the weeks that we're in right now, um, staying at home. And she said she's been thinking about the good, better, and best. And just as a reminder, she said the good, it's a good right now. Even as hard as what we're going through is, in varying degrees for each of you, uh, the fact that we right now still can be reminded that this can't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and it can't break our fellowship in a true sense of the word and that we can be worshiping and singing and praying um, and growing in the Lord each in our own homes connected via, this is good, she said. But there's a better that we're all eager for as each week goes on and this feels longer and longer and the better is this, that you being here in these chairs instead of these printouts on pieces of paper and we hear each other's voices and we see each other's faces and I hear Kent Kunke's amen and I hear Andy Green's woo. That's a better that we're all looking forward to. But she said, even the better, even when we're back in this room, we're still waiting for the best and the best is this that's gonna happen when he comes. The best is when Christ's church with a capital C, all the redeemed from every tongue and tribe and nation are all gathered in a kingdom that is truly one. Well, there's no more war. There's no more political parties. There's no more dividing lines. There's no more hostility. There's no more conflict or fighting or bitterness or resentment. But there's perfect peace. We get to be part of that. And this meal reminds us that that's coming when we are in a world that is reminding us that this world isn't that world yet. We sang in the, in, in the song just before this, when with all the ransom throng, we sing in glory redemption's song. His blood has covered us all along and it never lost its power. I want to just give a short word of encouragement about the Lord's Supper for a minute, Grace. Uh, and, it's, and it's about, we can't do this today, but, but when we are able to be gathering again um, as before in this room, you know that our tradition has been uh, once a month we have an evening Lord's Supper service. The first Sunday night each month. We've had this for years. To be able to have an extended time to linger and remember and uh, proclaim and anticipate together as a family time. And over all the years we've had this service, I've been struck that for a three-service on a Sunday morning church, we have never run out of chairs for our evening Lord's Supper service. And I don't say that to, uh, to manipulate with guilt. 
or to, to place a burden because I don't think that the Lord's Supper is a burden. It's a wonderful blessing that nourishes and renews our spirit that uniquely Jesus wants us to not miss out on. And so I want to encourage you in this period of time where we are sequestered in our homes and we're eager and we're growing in our anticipation for this better, would you consider if this has not been your priority to not miss when we celebrate the Lord's service, uh, supper service, if you can at all help it, to do that. I would love for us to run out of chairs at an evening Lord's supper service in the future. So back to Paul's point. He says the Lord's supper is intended to unite us as a church and to honor Christ. But the problem is in Corinth, what they were doing was actually forgetting Christ and profaning his name. And so he gives this caution in verses uh, twenty. 7 to 32. And here's the caution. He says, God's disciplinary judgment is intended to keep us from his eternal judgment. Notice in these verses, he, there's a lot of wordplay with the word judge and judgment and judging. And he's speaking of ju- two different types of God's judgment. Look at verse 32. In verse 32, we see both in the same verse. In the first part, he says, when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. So there's a form of God's judgment that is in real time, uh, an act of correction, a merciful uh, discipline, fatherly correction to help lead us away from sin into loving obedience. And so he says, so when we're judged by the Lord like that, we are disciplined, but it's for a greater reason. So that we may not be condemned, same word, judged, along with the world. So the Lord disciplines us, by ju- judges us in a disciplinary way so that we might not um, be judged in an eternal way. Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul seems to have the unique inspiration of the Spirit to know without a doubt that in their case, this is what's going on. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. He's saying that this sickness is not a coincidence, that God is mercifully trying to wake up some of you in Corinth to the hardness of your heart that the manner in which you celebrate the Lord's Supper exposes before it's too late and one day you stand before God as judge and maybe Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. He says this sickness is actually a mercy designed to make you aware that God has something better for you. So that raises a question, doesn't it? Does that mean sickness is always an act of God's um, discipline in our life? Does that mean if, if I am chronically ill, that there must, there must be sin that I haven't repented of, that God is disciplining me for? Not necessarily. Good health doesn't automatically uh, show that someone's right with God either. This world is full of healthy people who hate God. And this world is full of chronically, even terminally ill people who love Jesus and are faithful to him. So no, sickness is not always a sign of God's disciplinary judgment. In fact, the existence of sickness in our world should remind us of God's judgment at a larger level. Sickness is in the world because sin is in the world. And death entered in through sin, the Bible tells us. 
And sickness is a sad, temporary reality of this world, this creation, this, this earth right now because of sin on a, on, a, on a grand level. But specifically, individually, we should never conclude that sickness is always a sign there must be sin there. Remember that one blind man? And people asked, is this guy blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And Jesus said, neither. It's so that today my glory could be displayed in your sight as I heal him. Apparently there was another option. So absolutely not. It doesn't mean that sickness is always a sign of God's disciplinary judgment. But might sickness ever be an act of God's disciplinary judgment? I think we need to say yes. That's what Paul says. That's what James says. In James 5, we get these instructions. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the, uh, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So you notice the if. The if implies that while it's possible at times that God might use sickness as a wake-up, as a reminder that <laughs> there is death in the world and there is a God who created us to whom we will answer. Yes, sometimes, but does it always? No. So neither extreme. We shouldn't assume that sickness is always a sign of God's discipline, but we should also not assume that it's never a sign of it. Because in the Corinthians case, it was. And God was mercifully trying to wake up some among them who Paul realized they might be of the world and not of Christ and still under the condemnation that their sin deserves. And their hardness of heart at their Lord's Supper meals and their feasting and drinking with no care for the poor brothers and sisters among them might be evidence that they don't really know Christ in a saving way. So finally, Paul gives a correction. If they would wake up, here's then what they should do. He says, examine yourself and wait for one another. Look at verse 28. He says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself. Here's what this does not mean, I don't think. Examining yourself does not mean a deep, personal introspection to figure out if you are worthy to come to the communion table. Because none of us are worthy to come to the communion table. That's the whole point. It's not, God, am I worthy to come forward? Do I need to clean myself up so that now I'm presentable for, your ta for this Lord's Supper meal? That's not what Paul's saying. Notice he says, what can be worthy or unworthy is the manner with which we celebrate this Lord's Supper. So the question is, are you participating in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner or an unworthy manner? It's not... Have I somehow overlooked some small sin or th in thought or word or deed or action and I have not specifically named it or identified it or confessed it to God and I might not even be aware of it, but I'm still guilty and I'm going to come up and eat in an unworthy manner? No. We're standing in grace. I think sin runs so deep in us. I am, I am not aware, even in this last week, even in this last day, of every way in which I've sinned in thought and word and deed. And Christ's blood covers the guilt of that and graciously bears with me as, as, as I grow in my awareness of my own sin. 
But we are to examine ourselves. We are to make sure we're not, we're not hypocritically celebrating this meal. And here's how we do that, I think. Two things he says. He says we discern the body and we discern ourselves truly. Look at verse 29. He says, if you had discerned the body, um, uh, the one who does not discern the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the implication is you should discern the body. So the question is, what's the body? Does he mean the body of Christ or does he mean the body of Christ, the church? If he means the body of Christ, meaning you need to think carefully and understand the weight that Jesus' body and blood being sacrificed on your behalf means and have the appropriate humility and reverence and gratitude and and humility as you come forward and partake of it that would have no room for partiality or or, uh, spiritual uh, superiority or or self-righteousness. If he means discern the body as in the body of Christ, he would mean something like this. Don't just remember the bread on the table, but the body that is gathered with you around the table. Don't come to the Lord's Supper table with blinders on, but with awareness of the oneness that we are all unworthy, coming to a table where Christ's blood clothes us in righteousness like we sang this morning. But either way, I think the end result is the same. We discern the body, we discern who Christ is and what he's done for us, or we discern the body, who it is that we're celebrating with. And either way, it helps us approach the table humbly and thankfully. Secondly, though, we're to to discern ourselves truly. Look at verse 31. The ESV says, judge yourself. If you had judged yourself, then God would not have judged you in in a disciplinary way. But the word just means discern. It's the same word, discern yourself truly. I simply think that means ask yourself as you're about to eat and drink, am I about to eat and drink and remember Christ who makes us one, but are there any ways in which I am saying with my attitudes or my actions in my life that Christ is not one? that some are less one with Christ than I am. Or more generally, ask yourself, am I knowingly clinging to sin in my life with an unyielding, unrepenting heart in a way that is about to make my eating of this bread and drinking of this cup a sham, a hypocritical act, celebrating the very thing that I'm unwilling to come under? And either way, if your answer is yes, that doesn't mean stay away from the table. It means confess that to God right now. Even now, say, God, forgive me for this. Forgive me for this divisive heart. Forgive me for this self-righteous heart. Or forgive me for this stubbornness to to yield my life into loving obedience under your uh, lordship, Jesus, and under your good um, heavenly father um, uh, authority over my life and confess it, and then come to the table and celebrate with confidence that you're standing in God's grace because you're in good company. So I want to invite our worship team to come back up. Before we move to this and we take the Lord's Supper together, they're going to lead us in a hymn that actually helps remember, proclaim Christ's death, and anticipate his coming. And one of the verses says this, O fount of love divine, that flowed from our Savior's bleeding side, where sinners trade their filthy rags 
for his righteousness applied. Mercy cleansing every stain, now washing over us like a flood. There, the wretch and vilest ones stand adopted through his blood. This is what we're about to celebrate, grace. We'll do that in just a minute. Let's sing.